Welcome to Being Human. I'm your host, Richard Atherton. Very excited to say that today we have Hayden Shaughnessy on the show, an author and innovation expert. Hayden, welcome to the show. Oh, good morning. Great to be here. Fantastic to have you. So we got introduced through your co-author, uh, Finn Goulding, uh, and he recommended to have you on the show. And, and I know the two of you wrote, uh, well, Flow and the 12 Steps of Flow together. And um, I thought we'd focus the conversation around your message from that book. But I also know that you have a, a long history of writing in, in many other topics, which I think could be interesting to dive into, especially around platform economies and and an organizational form, which I know you also yeah. touch on in the flow book. So there may be a few few adjacent territories yeah. Yeah. that we might yeah. touch into, but yeah. I thought we'd we'd focus start with the start with the uh, the twelve steps of flow. Sure. Um, so is it worth you to you outlining the the main premise of the book or the main message, and then we'll go from there? Okay. Yeah, I think it is. So I think a lot of a lot of organizations at the moment are turning their attention to business agility or organizational agility. But actually, a lot of that language, a lot of the language that they use and the basic concept comes from software delivery. When you look at the methodology, and it is a very strict methodology around business, uh, sorry, software delivery, then you are simply not going to be able to transfer that to the business as a whole. Um, if, you, if you attempt to do the kind of ceremonies and sprint-like activities that you find in software delivery, you'll find them a constraining factor. So where Finn and I came from with this was to say, well, what would it look like if you started over and said, what does business agility really look like? What um, attributes do you need in order to be more agile as a business? And the books cover that. They're basically a primer on forget software agility, what does organizational and business agility look like? Right. And, um, and let's, so, so on, on, on what I found that I, I really enjoyed about both books actually is you really take a broad sweep you know you're, you're talking about the teams you're talking about what to do at the executive level you're talking about the physical architecture and then you take about you you take apart some of the staples of the, the agile world in terms of, of some key concepts um which i which i really enjoyed um but just starting and you, you touch on this early in the 12 sets of flow this idea of economies of scope you know could you expand on that a bit i thought it was interesting i can do that yeah i can expand on that I, I, that goes back to why do organizations need to change really and in an earlier book i wrote about scale scope and speed before people started to talk about agility they were talking about speed actually if you go back 4 or 5 years there was a movement towards what was a movement called the need for speed and, and the reason for that, the reason why you also need scope is Chinese companies do not respect Western business philosophy or ideas. Take the very, the very simple uh, change that Chinese companies bring to the market. They're not interested in gross margin. They're interested in a lot of money. So the kind of ways in which the stock market judges a company's performance um, for example, if you're Apple and the gross margin on the iPhone starts to slip, it signals a decline in Apple's, a potential decline in Apple's overall business health. And the stock market will mark it down for that reason. Chinese companies are just after how big can we get, uh, how much can we sell, how many different things can we sell, how much money can we make, and they just don't use those, those other metrics. When you start to think that way, look at a company like Alibaba, look at the phenomenal scope of businesses that it's involved in. You would be fired if you were a chairman or a CEO trying to do that in an American company or a British company. But they're actually in things like they have the equivalent of an Uber in Didi. They have a PayPal type thing in uh, Alipay. They are involved in the travel business. They own fo a football team. They have uh, digital uh, video streaming. They have audio, audio recording as well as investing in movies. They are involved in insurance, they're involved in medical technology, they have a cloud service as well. And that list can go on for a long time. So essentially, for the first time ever, the competition is going for scope. And if you don't pay attention to that, you're gonna find yourself out competing because there are a number of things happen with scope. Most importantly, I think, is that your cost of marketing reduces to zero. If you're Alibaba and, and you have somebody come to your travel platform and you know that they've never done long haul travel before, 
you take them to your Taobao platform and you sell them a suitcase. There's no cost of marketing involved. And, and that's the idea of this massive kind of ecosystem approach that not only have you reduced the cost of services because you're in the digital world or you've reduced the cost of products because you sell so many of them, you've also reduced the cost of marketing. Western companies face a battle to reduce the cost of production, the cost of delivery, and the cost of marketing. And, and they have, they're going to have to do that at scale, scope, and speed. And the scope element is how many different things can you do? How many new things can you do? How much innovation can you push through your organization? Which goes completely against the stick to your knitting idea and the core competency idea, right? It absolutely blasts core competency out of the water. It really does. You know, and, and a lot of the stuff that American business philosophy still adheres to is, is going to make them irrelevant. Actually, scale is going to make them irrelevant. And in the 80s, I worked at the EU, and we, we actually formed a unit to try and compete against uh, American technology companies because America had 350 million customers. No European country had more than 60, 60 million. I think Germany at the time was around about the 60 million mark before reunification. That was a phenomenal problem for Europe. And the only area really that we got over it were things like airlines where we could um, uh, create an effective monopoly through relationships with the, with, you know, I mean, airliners, air, aircraft, where we could create that effective monopoly through relationships mm. with the airlines and mobile. And actually, that was the area we focused on because mobile gave us scale. It's borderless. Therefore, you can have a European market for mobile. And we did, and that's why we got Nokia. But by and large, we were outcompeted in software and computer hardware by America and by the Japanese simply because of scale. Now, imagine the Chinese market at 1.4 million compared to the American market at um, uh, 50 million. Look at the Chinese middle class, 400 million. The American middle class, 90 million and declining. And you just see this massive scale advantage. And China's footprint around it in Asia, you talk about billions, markets of billions. Um, and I absolutely believe that the things that you see from the Trump administration are, are because of this. You know, it's because you, you look at the economics, you look ahead. There is no way for the United States to compete unless they start working substantially differently, unless they change their business philosophy. And flow is about how do you do the first of those? How do you work differently? How do you work in real time? How do you actually transform the social relationships in work so you can make decisions on, on the fly? You can generate new value propositions quickly. You can test them. You can get them out there in the hands of customers very quickly. So we're really about trying to say in, in, a, in a changed economic world against this backdrop of a really intensified competition and the transformation of how you do business, how you create wealth, how can you work differently and how can you work effectively and competitively? Right, and, and when I was sort of reading 12 Steps of Flow and then and saw your other work that you've just touched on in terms of these idea of, of searching for adjacencies and broadening scope, and you see it directly with it sort of improving the social interactions, which is one of the things you talk about in Flow, and this ability to exploit adjacent markets, because I, I couldn't quite see the link there. Um, okay, there's, so, no direct, there's no direct link in this, no causal link, if you like. I mean, I think there is a link. But the thing is, um, if you read uh, what executives at Alibaba say, um, if you read about how they do business, it's conversational. It's things like, we're in, we're in the travel business right now, uh, and, and a few of us are getting together and we, we have some ideas. Would this work if we, I don't know, if we said, okay, let's, let's create some innovations in the global hotel space. There's no need to go away and do that business plan. It's, it's a conversational decision. You say, okay, you know, I think there may be something in that. Let's give it a go. And it's that ability that, that um, I guess, because Chinese people are intimately involved with each other before they're doing business, they do business with friends, they do business with family, they have relationships, they have trust. So you can sort of say, okay, I know I can trust these people to go do that without sinking the ship. Uh, and what we lack in, with our hierarchical structures is that ability to just say, you know, let's just give that one a go. We'll see. We're, we're about that. It flows about the conversational nature of business. And what we say in the books is actually so better social interaction leads to better, better decisions at work. And, and it's absolutely key, a really key principle, because every organization we go into does very, very poor social interaction. Most organizations we go into are paralyzed by fear. 
And we see in systems where there's delegation, so you get an organization that says, we don't want to be as centralized as we are, we'll delegate. People who have to manage in that delegated environment are scared stiff of making decisions because they just don't know where they are. So there's a huge amount of work to be done on, let's just be human again. Why are we in this podcast? You know, so let's be human again and let's do what humans do, which is have sensible, intelligent conversations and make decisions on the back of that. And that's interesting to me because I don't have zero exposure to the sort of working within Asia or in Chinese companies. But sort of my preconception is that they would be quite formal and hierarchical. But it seems to me you're suggesting actually they're they're less, perhaps less formal, less bureaucratic, less hierarchical. Yeah, I think so. And, and you look at the, the foundings of Alibaba and it was Jack Maher and 17 Friends. There's some wonderful right. videos on, online now of Maher talking to those friends at the start and actually laying out his real mission, which is to outcompete the Americans wherever they can. Right. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, the story of a guy on a previous podcast was sharing about... Um, uh, Porsche were looking to get one of the lean gurus to come over from Toyota and, and help them develop lean within in Porsche. And, and this guy in, in Japan just resisted and resisted and resisted. And one of the reasons was he was fearful of um, betraying the nation, right, <laughs> by, by, yeah. by handing over this information to Porsche. And Porsche yeah. only got him to come over when uh, they convinced him that uh, Porsche wouldn't, try, wouldn't compete with uh, the Japanese manufacturers. But um, yeah, and I think when you're when you're looking at very formal uh, ceremonial type businesses, that's Japan, not China. In fact. Right. In right. Chinese business is very very different from each other. The approach to business is very different. Right. It's also something actually, which is I don't suppose we've ever been uh, exposed to this before. But you know, a nation of, uh, and an area of billions transforming their lives in front of our eyes, and they're pouring in from the countryside in a way which would probably have been, uh, well, is maybe comparable to what happened in the United Kingdom in the 17th and 18th centuries. And actually when, when, when Chinese people innovate, what they're actually doing is innovating for this new middle-class lifestyle that is an on life, online lifestyle, a network lifestyle, and actually a lifestyle very low on family because of the one-parent um, rule. So it's a society, I think, predisposed to network uh, digitally. And it's also doing all of this for the first time with technologies that none of us have used for more than 10 years. So there's an enormous sense in which it's, it's entirely new. I think that's a competitive weapon. Right, but what I'm also hearing here is, 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 there, is there, I mean, this almost feels like heresy to say this, but is there actually some benefit of this sense of nationalism in terms of a, a desire to, to build something you know, bigger than just the bottom line in these companies and that, and that builds trust and a, and a sense of mission in a way that you might not get in a sort of traditional corporate structure in the West? Absolutely. I think it's absolutely the case. And I think what we're seeing in uh, China is the growth of participatory capitalism. And that's another way of saying socialist capitalism, I suppose. But the ability that the Chinese companies have to get participation in the early phases of projects that they run is phenomenal. Um, but it's also that other thing which you just mentioned. Ma's company, Jack Ma's company, went out and trained one million young people in the countryside in how to be entrepreneurs. You know, so it's very much a mission to develop the countryside, to develop entrepreneurship, and to develop people. Uh, we are seeing, I think, in the United States, a recognition that they have to be more nationalistic. They have to be less globalistic, globalized in the sense that they have been. Um, and there's an unfortunate element of that because nationalism in, in our cultures is quite react, um, is reactionary and dangerous. You know, we, we perceive it automatically as dangerous. I don't think in the case of Chinese it necessarily is, but our responses to that could very well be dangerous. Right, and that was why I hesitated to mention it, because it, 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 it feels sort of almost taboo to, to, to promote mm. nationalism, right? Uh, the, yeah. yeah, from my sort of socio-economic position. Yeah, yeah that's fascinating. Yeah, um, right. So, so it's a conversational this 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 idea, and that's interesting. That the, the flow when we think of you know when you think about flow or agility, we you know we're thinking about you know how do we organize our team and you know what what structures do we use and what ceremonies and so on. 
but but this idea is actually to have about having a more conversational culture is and that makes it into me because that that speaks to a, an idea of flow and, and fluidity of yeah. movement and yeah. energy around an organization right mm. that seems yeah. to be more fundamental actually i think it is fun- fundamental and we also use these visualizations of uh work co-design so if you if you take it as basic that we don't uh, have rules there aren't that many rules in flow it's really about how can we co-design the best way to do the work that we are faced with and, and very often the first work that we have to do is to say well how are we going to create value in in a world where we need to do more things we need to serve more customers more segments in the customer base so we create visualizations of that pathway and those visualizations become venues for conversation and i think that is the most powerful uh, element in it Last week, I was inside an organization where there are people whose jobs would be absolutely dependent on each other. Their roles are absolutely dependent on the performance of roles in other parts of the organization. I mean, utterly dependent on each other. And if you draw that out, you can see it. They've never talked to each other. I mean, literally, 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 those people in that room had never talked to each other. How can you run a business like that? But that's the way businesses in the West are run. Right, and and I find that as a cons- consultant or as a coach, often the, the the most amount of value I'll bring to the organisation is not some content I've got. It's just the fact I've I've somehow got permission to convene people to have conversations in, yeah. in a way that they'd never normally have it. And you're like, oh, we never have conversations like this, and it's like, yeah, yeah it's yeah. fascinating to me that so, so I mean, often companies require externals to have that happen, and, and it's exciting for them. You know, it's one of those things where they want to come back into work to have those conversations. They tend not to. Uh, have them again. My experience is that the, the the ability to maintain conversations really is dependent on those visualizations we're talking about. Right. You need a venue for conversation. And also what we say is that in most cases, your work is never complete. In Agile, Scrum Agile, there is this concept of done, you know, and, and even more ridiculous, done, done. But in real life, it's never done. And it's always open for revision. And so one of our big things is we have this customer feedback wall where you actually make good use of things like your call center data or your social media and analytics and and actually look for what it is you can improve in your organization. And one of the things we do in our training, for example, is we have a a section in the training where we say, what's your experience as a customer? We have no problem generating, if we've got 12 people, 12 disastrous customer experiences that people have been through within the, the previous few days. The point about those is every single one of them has involved some feedback to that organization that's never been acted upon. And they all involve design. Those experiences are designed experiences. So it really is incumbent on organizations to have some feedback mechanism which says, we're not just listening to you. You know, we're not just going to send you a free T-shirt. Actually, the things you're telling us have a place. They come back into our flow of work and they go down into the digital team or they go over into the platform team because it's a fundamental problem, or they go to the pricing team. So you actually um, set those mechanisms up so that they inform continuous improvement of your work. A kind of continuous improvement is an old, an old concept, but often organizations don't have that simple mechanism for improving on the back of experiences that customers tell them about. Right, and, and your, this technique of having a wall is a way to keep that live in the conversation, so it's not yeah, sort of buried in reports and yeah, yeah. statistics. Uh, well, or, or if you're in the software world, buried in JIRA. You know, every, every, mm. every organization has these digital platforms that often your conversations with people are things like, you know, I've, I've written this report, it's taken me three weeks, it's got some great insight, you know, we'll put it in confluence, you know. Or, or data, you know, everybody databases that stuff. And the minute you do that, first of all, I think the minute you start writing reports or the minute you start having meetings, you've kind of lost the edge. If you have all of this, all of your work visualized, then you're able to convene and stand up a 15 minute uh, discussion at those walls. You're able to refresh the walls. You're able to develop them on. You're able to develop your understanding of the customer if you've got a customer innovation model. We have a customer innovation model as one of our kind of starting points. Um, and so you can be always talking about customers. You know, one of the things that we found in that particular area is people have come to us and say, 
our organization appears to be inauthentic about customer success or customer relationships. We go in every morning, we see that sign. Customers are at the center of everything we do. And we know it's untrue. So we're living this inauthentic life in our work. The problem with it, though, is not that people don't want it to happen. At the very top, they would like it to happen. They would like it to be more customer-centric. They just don't know how. And it's one of those kind of follies of modern business. We all know we've got to deal with customers in a different way. And nobody's thought, what would that way be? In flow, you really do put the customer at the center of everything. So you start with the customer innovation wall. And a lot of the goals that you set are goals for customer success. And at the end of the, when you're in delivery mode, you're trying to collect the data from customers straight away so that you can improve uh, processes back down the trail, if you like. So there is, there is in flow a method of being completely customer authentic and, and enjoying it. Right. And, and that's the other thing I picked up from your book. I like the idea of this, I, you know, our, our core currency, if you like, in terms of how we orientate our focus is this idea of the goal rather than epics and user stories and some of these artifacts, which can come, become quite cumbersome and bureaucratic. And I'm going to go beyond software, you know, and, and actually if you talk to people, in the Agile world. I think Agile's got two problems at the moment. And one is those ceremonies are, um, I don't think they give you the kind of adaptability that you need. But the other side of it, actually goals do, you know, if you set goals, you can set goals which are aspirational or time-based. And, and in Scrum, you're supposed to set goals. It's one of the big omissions of most Scrum work designers. They don't set uh, goals in the way that they're supposed to. But the other problem that Agile has, if you look at the demand for Agile personnel and Agile coaches around about 2012, demand was outstripping supply five to one. So around about 2012, let's, let's face it, before that, we'd already had expansion. Uh, but around about 2012, you get this uh, kind of massive exponential expansion of the training of Agile people. And you have to question whether that was done at a high enough level of quality to maintain the original ideals of the Agile Manifesto. And it, and it manifestly hasn't been done at the right level of quality. And we need to move on from it. Right. Okay. And so and so what do you okay, so here's a good question then. So how do we how do we develop quality um, individuals or people with a with a requisite set of skills to to play that role of, of coaching at, at organizations to become more agile? Well, I think that, that, you know, I've got a plug for flow. I think flow is a great way to do it. Um, but there, is, there, there are more fundamental problems than that. If you've got organizations, as this is happening right now, you'll get organizations that say, we want to do agile. And, and the metric for doing agile is actually to go out and train, say, 100 people and have 10 of those as coaches. And, and that's the kind of metrics that are being used. Or CIOs are being uh, having their feet held to the fire just to get people trained in Agile. The training is not good enough and, and the application of Agile is not good enough. You have to go further up the, um, up the pipeline, if you like. I think this is what you need to do. Because I don't think those Agile um, experiences are good enough, they're not going to extend to the rest of the organization anyway. But they won't extend to the rest of the organization because there's a fundamental problem for companies right now, another one. Uh, this is because since the beginnings of open innovation and things like Lean Startup, we've been pumping more and more and more projects into the pipeline, into the funnel, because we've um, allowed ourselves to believe that we can sort out the wheat from the chaff as it's going through the organization. And what it means is that we've taken a, a value-free uh, view of what comes into the funnel. And in flow, what we try and say is, the first thing you need to do is stop waste going into the funnel. You don't want to be doing loads of MVPs or... Uh, and for people listening, MVP, that's a minimum viable product. Yeah, the minimum viable product idea, the uh, lean iterations or open innovation, they're promiscuous ways of doing business and you need to be much more focused on what am I going to do to serve the segments that are emerging in my business, in, in my business area. Now, take as, as an example of that, um, the rise of companies like Currency Fair or TransferWise, those types of uh, organizations, those types of disruptors, if you like. 
it was really clear to everybody going back to around about 2012 that there was a need for small businesses, a new need in the small business community to have access to cheaper and more foreign currency services. Because what does the internet do other than globalize? And it allows small businesses to function um, in Australia or in America or in China or wherever it might be. So the need for those currencies was, was absolutely obvious. Um, the banks don't segment their market, their customer base in a way which allows them to see that. It's a problem of segmentation. Um, before TransferWise and before Currency Fair, there were currency houses, currency specialists who'd seen that opportunity and were already moving into it. You know, so in a sense, Currency Fair and TransferWise are just the kind of emblematic um, sign of bank failure. But the bank failure emerges because of very, very poor segmentation. It's the, we have our account holders, our premium account holders, our high net worth individuals, and our mortgage accounts with sell some insurance. And that's their idea of understanding the 19 million people that they serve. So you've got a problem in most organizations that they, apps, they actually don't understand the, the segments that they're serving. They don't understand how those segments are changing, and they're not geared up to serve on a segment basis. They're, they're geared up to identify their products as the segments take the car industry it's the if you're ford it's the car ka car as, as an entry vehicle it's the ford focus if you're in your early 20s it's the ford mondeo if you're an executive it's um uh, an suv if you've got a sporty family you know so you're basically in those instances using your product line as a proxy for the segmentation of the market the things that are emerging in the market so in flow what we really really focus on is can we understand the segments better can we segment in much more detail and therefore can we make sure that only projects of value enter the funnel right and so, so, and this has like, there's two ideas there though. So there's this idea that we can be fluid in our conversations and people can come up with an idea and say hey let's go do this but we're also applying a check on that in terms of trying to understand the customer data so, so it's, it's those two together is that right yeah i th i think it's not necessarily just the customer data it's the customer segments you know if you look it's at a, yeah, that's what, yeah. Cust uh, companies have always wanted to look um at their segmentation it's it's a poor they have a very poor approach to it because it's things like my segments are based on gender, or they're based on geography, or they're based on income. But actually what happens today is, um, in marketing, for example, there are companies that will now tell you your segments are changing by the hour. Um, sometimes the, a change in weather changes your segments. Things like the Me Too movement change the nature of what people are willing to buy in certain areas. So, so segmentation is becoming much, much more dynamic and, and the buying public is becoming much more varied. Uh, the old-fashioned ways of trying to organize your sense of that through gender or geography or product line just don't work anymore. So you need to be building that segmentation out and have that as part of your conversation. So yes, it's about, okay, we can just go do something, but it's about doing it with the, this perspective that I actually understand those segments and I understand what's emerging in those markets. And somewhat, not just should we go do this, is if we don't do this, somebody else will. And that might be a startup that has high growth potential. That They may, may eat our lunch. We've got to do it. Right, okay. And that's coming from the, so this is interesting, and I can really see that that's coming from the, this, yeah, that's coming certainly from the position of a large organization. It's like, how do we get finer grain segmentation? How do we, um, how do we manage that on a fluid basis? How do we, we create customer goals for those segments. Um, but what about, because when I was reading some of your work, I was like, what about if you're a small company uh, and we have this view that the, the global trade will increasingly be dominated by these large platforms? It's almost like, do we even bother trying? There's, somehow there's, there's this sense of, uh, yeah, how do, how do we compete when we know there's a, a platform that might come and eat our lunch at any moment? I don't, I, I don't believe that those platforms are there to eat, eat the lunch of other companies without opposition to that. You know, if you look at an area like the imaging industry, um, you have Pinterest and Instagram, a lot of images around Facebook. 
And you have this older industry, which is things like Fujifilm, Kodak, and companies like that have disappeared, I suppose, at this stage, Ilford, that used to do print output. Now, this, this particular area, um, the print output industry, uh, we know Kodak suffered greatly, um, went into chapter 11 or chapter 12, whatever it is. Um, but actually, their industries expanded exponentially when you think about it. It's not just that more people take photographs, more people use them. There, there are trillions of photographs uploaded, uh, I think, on a monthly basis these days. So there's an exponential increase in the use of photography. Uh, and it's being captured by companies like Pinterest and Instagram and not monetized. I mean, it's monetized indirectly through advertising. I think it, it's part of the sadness of American industry, if you like, that all these things end up becoming an advertising vehicle. But there is something that says these companies here, like Kodak, why shouldn't Kodak become a platform that brings together people with a love of uh, the image and create a, a gig economy version of, of photography where, where people trade a bit? You know, it seems to me that there is an, an instance there, an example of it's there to be done. It's just that these older companies don't know how to do it. And I think it's also the case in many other areas, like the banks at the moment, are, are caving into Apple and, and Alipay because they want first mover advantage over their competitors and they're not going to get much of it. But you know they have something which says, I have to do this, I have to um, ally with Apple. But what they're not doing is saying something like, you know, probably in, in, this, in the shape of things to come, I don't want 20 million customers serving them this range of products. I want 200 million customers and possibly the way to get to those 200 million customers is right now to focus on foreign exchange. So I'll, I'll create that, that FX platform of the future. So, so what I'm trying to say by that is we, we fear these platforms like Apple, Amazon, Alibaba because we're not competing with them. They can eat our lunch because we don't know how to compete. And the, the, the mechanisms for competition are there. You just need to have the right conversations about them. Right. And um, one of the things you, you said differentiates this new sort of platform mindset is this idea of organizing economic activity, right? That that you and that and this idea of creating advocates, communities of advocacy you talk about. Yeah. Uh, and and that that resonates with what you just spoke about in terms of could Kodak sort of find a community of photography lovers and and seek ways to help organize their ac economic activities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely the principle. Companies are beginning to understand that ecosystems of activity are really critical to them, but they don't know why or how. So um, very often with, with the, this idea of the ecosystem, uh, well, first of all, the idea of the business ecosystem is probably one of the least explored of all, all business ideas. What we've tended to do instead is say, platforms give you network effects. And the idea of the network effect is if I've got a phone, I need all my friends to have a phone in order for my phone to have value. So I will go and persuade my friends. I will be the advocate and persuade them. But there's an, an element of necessity there. I have to persuade them. And that's a network effect. Very, very few companies, very, very few areas of economic activity have that network effect. But when you read the literature around platforms and ecosystems, it's absolutely focused on the network effect. What I've been saying in that discussion is, actually what we're looking at is the effect of being on a network or the effect of being in a network. And if you look at it that way, it's anybody's. You don't have to be that first mover platform with a network effect. Because we're all on networks, there is an effect of being on a network, which is you can scale business much more quickly, much more cheaply, if you get the right advocacy. And to get that advocacy, you need to understand what it is your ecosystem is trying to achieve. We have so little literature on how ec ecosystems function, though, that I think that business, traditional Western business people think, um, I don't quite understand that. It doesn't fit with my, my KPIs or my ROI calculations. I find it very difficult to invest in, in the people element of that ecosystem and trust that things will come good. Now, why should you trust that things come good? Uh, I posted on LinkedIn, for anybody who can go and look at it, uh, Amazon's book ecosystem. Now, Amazon totally dominates the book market globally. 
There are about 12 companies that Amazon owns that do some of that work. There are thousands of companies around that, um, that make up the Amazon ecosystem that Amazon doesn't own and can influence, but often doesn't influence. As an example, if you want to sell books on Amazon, you probably need an Amazon virtual assistant because they know how to make good Amazon listings and they know how to optimize the Amazon search engine. To find an Amazon virtual assistant, you need to go to Upwork. They're probably going to live in Thailand or somewhere like that, Indonesia. So actually, Upwork becomes integral to the Amazon ecosystem. But Amazon has never gone to Upwork and said, can you develop as a community of virtual assistants? Because we need them. It's an organic thing, and that's what I think scares the life out of most chief executives, CIOs, CMOs, COOs, the fact that these new business models, these new business organizations are far too organic for them to understand and for them to plan around. And that's why they're not responding in the way they should to the platforms that are already there and out there and have these ecosystems. Right. And it's a, it's a, it's a very different vocabulary, isn't it, than the idea of product market fit and solving this problem for this customer persona and you talk about that in the book but personas can be quite restrictive and they're quite static but it's a very different sort of set of ideas isn't it that actually we're talking about social conversations with ecosystems and helping to organize economic activity i mean it's a it's a whole it's a new lexicon isn't it yeah it is and the point that phil and i make in the book is actually what we're trying to do with that lexicon is make it very common sense so we're not reaching out for analogous areas like epics and stories and sprints. You're not trying to create a new language. This is the language of business. It's really about having the right conversations with the right people. Uh, the ecosystem idea is, is problematic because it doesn't have an easy ROI. And so you have to find ways in which you trust the people that are going to help you grow that ecosystem or grow, those, grow that advocacy base. And you just have to say that's not an easy one. Uh, it's really not an easy one. But the models are there, and very often in business, we have managed to educate managers through case studies effectively. After all, that's the Harvard Business School model. So if you look at those ecosystems, I've now mapped out the Google search uh, ecosystem, the Airbnb ecosystem, uh, the Amazon book ecosystem, to a certain extent, the Alibaba ecosystem. You know, we just need to do more work on it. We need to do more research and, um, and put those templates out there. The Alibaba ecosystem is quite different from the uh, Amazon ecosystem, and that's different again from the Google search ecosystem. How they originated and how they grew is different, but we can learn by example, I think. Right, and I think the other the other set of ideas that come into play here is the, is the, the complexity ideas and this idea that there's also within all this there's a there's a level of unpredictability. And that part of our skill as managers and leaders is 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 tapping in and tuning into emerging trends, yeah, yeah. ecosystems, and that our individual interactions form these patterns, and then these patterns simultaneously shape our interactions, and and that that set of ideas, I think, is which has kind of been ignored by all the business schools, but I think is pertinent to this conversation. Uh, very much so, actually. It was something that Phil and I were talking about yesterday. Uh, so we were trying to talk about, well, what does leadership look like in a non-hierarchical organization? Um, the term servant leadership, I, well, we both hate. Um, there's nothing servile about helping people. So what does it actually look like? So you're going to say we, we have to be less hierarchical. We need to be more conversational. What does a leader do? And, and he was making the point that that's actually the problem that a lot of companies have. They want to be less hierarchical, but they've got leaders who are... You know, all, all kinds of leaders at different levels are saying, well, what then is my job? Is leadership a, a, a giggable uh, skill set? Uh, does it have a place in the future economy? It very much does. And it's about these types of things. It's about the, the softer things, it's about relationships. It's about sustaining people's belief in their organization. It's about creating enjoyment. It's about creating networks and, and creating links. So leaders have to start redefining their, their skills around these things rather than that rather enjoyable thing, the alternative that they have at the moment, which is command uh, and reporting lines and uh, self-importance and those types of things. Right. 
And then the other point you make, I think, on the management side of this is the the skill of the well, this is my this is my term here, but the the financial engineering to say, okay, we've spotted this adjacency. Let's 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 put you know let's put some financial power power behind it. And is that is that right that that's a big role of the executive in in this in this new economy? Um, well, in most cases, uh, or most accounts of what you should do, it, it is uh, small steps, small investments, and build confidence in those. Um, so, so I think that actually what Finn and I have been saying is that while that's all, all well and good, and there's, there's a lot of truth in that, uh, very often what organizations have done is created work that they don't really need. And one of the most disengaging experiences for people in work is to know that you're working on a project that's going nowhere. Oh and God, I've had a few of those. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, haven't we all? <laughs> so, so here you have this situation where uh, what we say is you need to you need to expose that, you need to visualize that, and make the goals of the organisation more transparent, and assure people visually that the projects they're on have a, have a role in fulfilling those goals. And, and actually, when you do that, you tend to find about 30% of your projects are, are irrelevant to the goals you've set. Now, you can look at that and say, that's because we have um, experientially started to develop new goals. We, we know those goals uh, from the last um, off-site, executive off-site weren't, weren't entirely good enough or accurate or, or suitable for this market we're in and, and, and somehow surreptitiously we started to do other work or you can fess up and just say we've got guys here who are really good at getting projects through and they've blown through millions and, you know wasted it uh, and you've got to do that executive portfolio wall that we illustrate in the book and that in itself can free up 20 30 percent of your project resources so i think it's not just about should I do the iterative small steps and grow confidence in something? It's about can I be honest enough to clear out a lot of the um, a lot of the waste that I've already created? Right, and I think that yeah. So taking some of those lean principles, which have been so effective at a sort of micro level in terms of a, a production flow, and applying it to the, the organisation, really. Is that, yeah. Is yeah. That right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And do, do executives want to do that? You know, can they do that? I think there are other issues as well. I was looking at the, um, the headcount at RBS recently, uh, the, um, the IT headcount. It's about 18,000 IT people at RBS, 19 million customers. Netflix has 120 million customers. Its total staff complement is about 5,000. <laughs> so maybe, maybe IT is about three, three and a half thousand to serve 120 million customers. RBS is a normal company. You know, it's got 18,000 IT people serving these 20 million. You, you have to believe that the people running that company don't know who to fire, but you, you, you also know it's coming. You know, and I think this is one of the unspoken um, crises ahead of us. It's not to do with the cyclical recession that we're going to get. We're, we're a year away from that. Maybe we're already entering it. But actually, I think there's going to be a clear out of management uh, and clear out of these uh, some of these IT departments that will resemble the clear out of the mines, the mining communities in the 1980s. So, uh, you know, it's my message to companies when I go in is how, how are you going to sustain this? How are you going to sustain the waste you've created? The problem for them is, is actually they don't know who to fire, but they know they've got to fire a lot of people. And we're gonna, it's going to happen, you know, it'd be Brexit um, as an excuse, or it'd be robotics as an excuse, automation as an excuse. Most of those organizations, though, are not fit for the markets they're in. Uh, and, and I think, again, it's, okay, lean iteration's great, uh, small ideas, building confidence, all those things um, uh, are interesting ideas. But the crisis we face is much bigger than that, and they're not going to help solve it. Right, and I think that I think one of the differences between perhaps companies in the West, or at least companies that aren't... Um, committed to some of these lean principles is that we build up these huge hugely huge amounts of waste and then we have to do this slash and burn periodically whereas i think a culture of continually managing waste freeing up resources finding new areas to 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 focus resource um means that we don't get these, these big build-ups where 
where perhaps it becomes relevant to fire. Yeah, yeah. That would be, be an interesting way to think about it. You know, if you were if you were a Lloyd's Bank or a, an RBS or a Barclays, knowing that you're overstaffed in so many of your areas, do you wait for that slash and burn moment, the Jack Welch moment, or do you do something far more intelligent than that, which is to say, okay, we know we've got to slim down over time, and, and actually. Um, that might be the right analogy. It's better to lose a pound uh, a month rather than lose five kilos and put 10 kilos back on. So so is there a way to intelligently manage those people into newer roles? And can you actually bring yourself to acknowledge the need for scope, you know, and get out of your core competency mindset and say, well, actually, we can start to flow people out of these redundant roles that we're, we're having to maintain them in we can flow them into more productive roles and, and new things that we could be doing. Because actually that's the big difference, you know, that companies like Alibaba and Alibaba Group, um, the scope of activity that they've got is phenomenal. Why shouldn't uh, a Barclays bank be involved in, say, um, I don't know, shipping? Why shouldn't it be involved in, in the actual uh, revolution of the shipping industry in some way, not in a financial role? It, there are other things that people can do. Does it actually make sense to um, do what we do, which is, as you'd say, get to this moment where you slash and burn? Or does it actually, does the Chinese model make more sense? You know, that you can continually create value, continually be looking for adjacencies and the next thing that you can do because you've got smart people who have good conversations. And that's right. And it's trusting these people's ingenuity and skill set that they they can turn their hand to another sector or another yeah. customer segment and offer them something new, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that other role we talked about earlier, that they have, they have a, a role in economic development. They have a role in the development of, of their country. Um, the early conversation that we, mm. we shouldn't have labelled it nationalism, um, but this, this this sense that you have responsibility for your community is a sideline for us. It's CSR, whereas in fact it's um, again probably one of the most productive things that Barclays and RBS could be doing right now is is in, ingeniously um, redeploying people into more productive roles rather than wait for this awful moment that might be March 2019 when they say Brexit's forced us to do this. We're sacking 5,000 people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Uh, yeah. I think. I think that that does represent, though, a big, a big shift, uh, a big shift in the in the mindset. And uh, an impossible. Um, one. And, and I think it actually means face people, people as leaders and managers facing their shadow at some level. I was having a conversation with an ex-theatre director who does a lot of um, executive work, and he talks about using you know, theatrical metaphors. And but this idea of we're facing the shadow and I think that's part of what your executive wall is about it's about fessing up and being honest and and humble and saying hey you know 30% of what we're doing is is a waste of time guys yeah yeah how are we going to shift that and that but that takes something that I don't know if many leaders are, are trained for or have the uh, appetite or the incentive to to do I think you're right um yeah obviously what we're not doing, uh, there is a role for the, the, I hate this idea of thought leaders, you know, I think it's stupid. There, there is a role, though, for people who think about these things more than do them. Uh, and that is to create more and more conversation about what is a more sensible way and what can we learn from uh, Asian business models. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and it, well, and of course, it's not just the Asian companies who are operating this way. I mean, I would argue that Amazon is a great example, and some of you know, this idea of exploiting adjacencies. There's something, there's something of, of that spirit in some of the Western companies oh, yeah. that have been so successful. Right? Yeah, I think Amazon is a great example of it. But um, there's also something which a uh, conversation I was having recently with somebody which said that the conversation was the usual one. We cannot innovate in the core of our business. Um, that idea. Uh, we have to do it to the side of our business. You know, this um, idea of dual innovation is quite um, popular right now. And I was saying, well, if you're Amazon, you did Kindle. That's right at the core of your business. You did Alexa. You changed the way people function in their homes. You changed human behavior in one device. Uh, and you changed your business and you've opened up a new opportunity. And it's right in the core of your business. So actually, the, the great innovators don't do this other thing on the side. They do take the, the middle road, the middle, the middle, the core of their business, and they can transform it fundamentally, maybe sometimes accidentally. 
but that's another lesson for us, I think, that um, we're, too, we're far too timid with this idea that the, the core is something that we've got to protect uh, and, and it becomes inviolate. We can't go near it, you know, it's that whole execution thing. There's execution and then there's innovation and labs. Right, okay. So it's like anywhere there's an opportunity. So it could be right in front of you, it could be the JCC. Yeah. And that's being fluid. I mean, that's back to the, the, this idea of being being fluid and, and being in the conversation about where we might. Yeah, and, and moving away way. from these ideas that are 40 years old now. I think those core competency books were 1990. That's, yes, 30, 30 years ago. Uh, and, and it was based on examples from prior business practice. You know? So how do we shake off the, the, the dead hand of old business ideas? Right, yeah. Okay, well, a uh, final question I'd like to ask uh, some of the guests is, um, for you, what does it mean to be human? Well, actually, I think we've been talking about it for an hour. Um, it's about conversations, isn't it? Uh, sometimes when, when you go into different organisations or you have conversations with people about how do you communicate, what is the best way to communicate? And there's this kind of vogue for saying, well, you have to do it through stories. So you have to find a story to tell about something. I'm, I'm not really sure about that. You know, I think that conversations, um, uh, that idea is this uh, part of this problem I mentioned earlier, that we move to consensus very quickly on things. And there is a consensus that you communicate in a particular way or there's consensus about core competency and those types of things. To me, being human is how varied can that conversation be? What, what range of techniques can we bring to it? Because there is no one tech. Flow's not one, the right technique for everything. It's a technique for some things. Uh, and so what I really believe is the, um, the human element is uh, having that appetite for different ways to do things. Fantastic. Thank you. And for listeners who want to get more and learn more about Flow, you've got the Flow Academy website. Is that right? Yeah, Flow Academy, flow-academy.org. Uh, the books are on Amazon, 12 Steps to Flow and Flow Handbook for Changemakers. I have a copy right in front of me here. Handbook for Changemakers and Mavericks. So, yeah, they're, they're a good read, actually. And, and Flow, the first book, what we did with it, I think it's probably the most beautiful business book out there. It's, it's illustrated, it's colourful, and, and I think it's a bit of fun. Yeah, I mean, I can highly recommend them, highly readable, lots of practical examples of how to use it. Um, it, it and, I, and I think quite liberating for people who um, have read a lot of the, the agile literature, which can feel quite heavy and quite prescriptive, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, and it yeah. like, feels like it's kind of getting back to the basics. It reminds me of reading the one from many book from the, the found or one of the founders of uh, Visa and who became a CEO and okay. just talked about the the lit, agile with a small a process for building the Visa platform. And it, and it was so refreshing to read it because it was just so simple, you know, well, we put the things we need to do on the wall and we each take a task each day. And, it, yeah, and, and this yeah. sort of, sort of yeah bare bones explanation of it is actually much more accessible i think yeah yeah well i hope people will take a read brilliant well thank you so much for your time um really appreciate it uh, i'm thank sure our, our listeners are going to get get a lot from it and uh yeah uh good luck with uh, flow academy and uh and uh yes great and, and the work you're doing. all right thanks hayden have a great day yeah. cheers bye-bye bye, -bye. bye, -bye now. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.